Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 9th, 2021. A couple of days ago, uh, there was a drone attack on the Iraqi prime minister, a man called Al-Kadimi. He survived it, but it wasn't much in the American news. Um, what The Wall Street Journal reported on it in terms of this ongoing, endless, perhaps historic uh, conflict between Iraq and Iranian-controlled militias in Iraq. Um some people believe, at least in the Washington Post, that the assassination attempt uh, backfired spectacularly. But when it comes to backfiring, one wonders really what that all means in the context of Iraq. The Pope condemned what he called the vile assassination attempt in Iraq. But in the United States, the response was relatively muted. There was a statement by President Joseph Biden on the attack, but it was pretty muted, pretty standard. It could have said anything, and Biden uh, kept out of this event. Um, of course, this is all related with the fact that Joe Biden says that the U.S. combat mission, whatever that means, that's a euphemism in Iraq, to conc- is going to end at the end of the year. Uh, more and more headlines about the U.S. combat forces leaving Iraq by the end of the year. And of course, this all raises the issue of what the whole point of the Iraq war was. If the Americans are leaving, there are still assassination attempts on uh, the prime minister. I bring all this stuff up because there's a a really interesting new book out today called um, They Called Us Lucky, uh, The Life and Afterlife of the Iraq War's Hardest Hit Unit. It's by uh, a congressman, uh, Ruben uh, Gallego. Uh, but a very articulate literary one. This is anything but a political book. It's a very personal book about his experience in the Iraq war. And I'm thrilled that um, Congressman Gallego is joining us today. Uh, Congressman uh, Ruben uh, Gallego, uh, from you, you represent Arizona. Where are you talking to me from today, Ruben? From my home in Phoenix, Arizona. I hope it's not too hot there, Ruben, is it? No, finally got nice and cool in the last couple of weeks. Good. Well, it's a relief, although I guess your experience in Iraq uh, certainly prepared you for that kind of heat. When you see yeah. these headlines, what was the point of the war, if there was one? Is it just a complete farce when it comes to American withdrawal and the fact that nothing really seems to have changed in Iraq? Oh, look, I think it was a strategic mistake for us to go in the first place. It was one based on hubris, uh, one based on just bad you know, thinking that somehow we can change a, a nation, uh, that we can control uh, you know, any nation in the Middle East and turn them into a Western-style uh, democracy. Uh, it was based on greed, in my opinion, uh, and it was based on lies. And uh, we went in there uh, and destabilized a, a country like Let's admit Saddam Hussein was a horrible human being, but was he an existential threat to the United States? Absolutely not. Uh, instead, we you know, killed thousands of young men and women, Americans, and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis uh, to create a destabilized country uh, that may end up being even more uh, of a um, 
uh, a threat if they uh, align fully with uh, Iran than when they were uh, a country unified under Saddam Hussein. It was a mistake. That's There's just no other way about it. The book, uh, They Called Us Lucky, is not a geopolitical analysis. It's a very personal one. And I read it today, uh, Ruben. It's heartbreaking. It's a really heartbreaking story of how soldiers like yourself, and you're the lucky one using this word, and we'll talk a little bit about luck. You're the Mm -hmm. lucky one who came back in one piece, both mentally and physically, and you went on to greater Mm -hmm. things. Physically, yes. Mentally, no. Well, but in many of the people in in your book, uh, in particular, uh, some of your friends were killed. Others have been maimed uh, in physical and particularly in mental terms. This was a a, a tragic event in American history. Uh, We've had people on the show arguing that it was the it was the worst mistake in American um, history in terms of foreign policy. Do you agree with that? Certainly, and certainly it's a, it's a moral wrong that we, we put upon the world, um, you know, and, and we did it on false pretenses. It was literally against, you know, all the values of the United States uh, to be a uh, country that is the aggressor versus for, a, you know, essentially, you know, a non-aggressing country against us. And uh, it's an absolute mistake. And, you know, the, the book doesn't really get into details like that because I didn't want the book to be about a policy. I didn't want it to be about my perspective. I wanted it to be the perspective of what you see if you're an infantryman, if you are just a young man out there and in a really, you know, screwed up, fucked up war. I'm sorry, I don't know if I can swear. but uh, You can swear as much okay. as you want on my show, Ruben. Okay, good. Well, and this war Ruben. deserves a lot of swearing. Yeah. And and if you, you look at it, you know, you, you feel the sense of, of abandonment that we had. I mean, we were left out in the middle of the desert. We were overwhelmed by insurgents. Uh, it was one battalion, but essentially it was one company that was taking on a lot of the, the, the fighting, uh, house to house fighting. We'd go and clear cities and then we'd have to come back and clear cities again. Insurgents just got smarter. We we're operating without proper intel, proper armor, uh, even proper manpower. And we did heroic things. Men did heroic things to keep themselves alive and come back. But, you know, at the end of the day, we ended up taking all these casualties and and I talk, you know, I do talk about the the feeling of just hopelessness that we ended up having. I mean, towards the end, I thought I was just I accepted death because there was nothing left anymore. And even the the idea of trying to survive was going to was actually going to drive me crazy. Uh, and it was all because it was a bunch of old men that, you know, were willing to gamble with young men lives. And that's that's a history of war. And that's why I want to write this book is I want people to understand that war sucks and people die and people come back and they're hurt. Uh, and I'm still hurting and my men are still hurting. Uh, and we shouldn't be doing these wars of options uh, when you're dealing with these, you know, with with men's lives, men's and women's lives and for their families. The book um, is a very personal story. Uh, they called us lucky. As I said, you play around quite in a quite dark way with this idea of luck. It's a lot about mm-hmm. your story of a um, of, of somebody who found themselves quite literally at Harvard, very unusually from someone of your background, Colombian, Mexican, uh, immigrant family. Um, and you sort of half drop out of Harvard, you wander into a, um, you run to into a recruitment station and you end up in Iraq. And, and, and in a sense, you're lucky because you're sitting here talking to me today. But in a sense, you were very unlucky to go from Harvard to uh, Haditha and Ramadi. 
Well, and, and just want to be clear, because I know there's a lot of military experts. We never ended up in Ramadi. <laughs> uh, we, we were in Al-Ambar in Haditha and, and, and you know, uh, all the way up to the western uh, to the western border of Iraq. Um, look, the what got me into Harvard was by choice. When I joined the Marine Corps was by choice. Me ending up in with Lima 325 was was luck or, or bad luck. Me seeing combat and surviving combat was 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 luck. Uh, and and dealing with the aftermath of it is bad luck. Um, the the whole book actually is kind of an interplay between the idea of luck and who's worthy of luck and who's not, and even if it exists, right? And it's kind of a, also an, it's interchangeable with God. And I have a lot of conversations about my relationship with God in this book because I have a deep down you know hole in my in my understanding of why would there be. Uh, a God that chooses, you know, married men to die versus single men with no kids, right? Why did you choose us to take these, you know, really hard casualties and other for others to survive? Or is it just random chance, random luck, and we're just supposed to live in this chaotic world where we have, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, and, and even while we operate, we even operate on luck. We used to switch out who would clear a door first because, you know, every, you, if you're the guy who's always kicking the door, chances are you're the one's going to get shot eventually. And so luck has everything to do with this book um, to the point where we were called lucky. Ironically enough, soon after we were called lucky by the newspapers and by other Marines, we ended up starting casualties and they ended up being the largest casualties of the Iraq war. And, and I think also since the Beirut bombing in general. These are age old themes, Ruben, uh, one of the more entertaining aspects of the book. And it is a, I won't call it an entertaining book. It's a very profound book, but incredibly readable. Um, very non-policy and, 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 and no sort of a political speaker, uh, um, which dulls it. Um, one of the, the anecdotes is at one point, I think in the training, you're, you're carrying around the complete works of Shakespeare yeah. because you were taking a class at, at Harvard simultaneously. Yeah. There's a Shakespearean quality, I think, to the issues that you're grappling with, of bad luck, of good luck, of, 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 um, of war, and yep. innocence and of justice. Uh, clearly, Shakespeare had an impact on you. You got something out of your Harvard education. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so what actually, the, the story to that is I actually took this great class on Shakespeare and just all his major plays and sonnets. And um, I got activated, not to go to Iraq, my first other, because I got activated twice, but the first time I went to Japan. Um, and uh, the my professor gave me the option of either taking my grade or taking my exams later. Um, and at that point I was getting, I think it was a B and I wanted to get a higher grade. So I took my my whole book and I took it out with me to active duty training, which is like a, it was a two month workup. Uh, and we go out into the field and I had to carry that, that big book and as part of my other gear. And I'd sit at night and just read the book. And then eventually I had the, the test proctored by a chaplain who had to swear and test that I wasn't gonna cheat or anything of that nature. And ended up getting a, a B plus, you know, not the A one, but a B plus. And, you know, there was, you know, certainly a lot of what you see in this book you can find in Shakespeare. There is there is comedic, you know, uh, value to it when we try to make our own alcohol uh, in Iraq. We call it prison hooch that that did not go well. When we start, you know, sneaking in all our booze uh, through teddy bears and stuffing, uh, you know, booze into the teddy bears from our loved ones at home, then there's just the tragedies that just continually occur with, you know, different, you know, different officers, different, you know, commanders just continuously putting us up into a situation that was really unwinnable 
and uh, un untainable. Uh, and um, uh, unfortunately, you could find all of that in there. And I say unfortunately because, you know, uh, me and my men ended up living it and seeing it. Um, Ruben, you begin the book with a character called Mackenzie, um, and mm -hmm. he he is the narrative thread in the book. He's um, a Native uh, American. Uh, I had Margaret Jacobs on the show recently. She's written a book, and many people have written books on this, on the troubled history of injustice to indigenous people in America. Um, is there any coincidence, do you think, to the fact that Mackenzie is from indigenous, um, in, an indigenous community? Could he have been from anywhere? And perhaps you might say a little bit about Mackenzie and, and, uh, and, why and how he, he, he is the central thread in the book. Well, because he is, he's a real person. Um, and, um, he's one of the first men I met in the Marine Corps. And he's a great friend of mine. And, you know, I, I've looked him, looked up to him. Um, there is actually a, a very strong tradition within the Navajo nation, uh, which is the area that uh, uh, he's from and that was attract that joined the the Marine Corps Reserve unit of serving in the Marine Corps. It goes back to World War II with the code talkers, which were all Marines. And so that legacy carries on. So um, the area that I was in in serving out of was New Mexico, which has a huge indigenous population. And so there the people that end up joining happen to be a lot of them are indigenous. And there's a couple other uh, characters, also friends of mine called the Bailon brothers, Cheston and John Bailon, that are on there. Uh, and so there is a history there that that matters to them. And that's why they find themselves uh, a, a lot of overrepresentation, actually, uh, in war. And in fact, in in the military, um, the Native American community has the highest uh, uh, concentration of, of military personnel. Um, there's a there's also the side history of the fact that you know if you do live on reservation land and you are a veteran, the chances of you getting services are very difficult. The chances of you getting uh, you know a job are very difficult uh, because you're so far away from any of the city centers, and a lot of that ends up you know wrapping up McKenzie into it. Uh, and but you know the real reason McKenzie is in this is because I I didn't know how to start this story uh, or or start the story of Lima Company, and I couldn't come up on uh, on any way to do it until I, I thought about this day when I had to drive all the way to Albuquerque, New Mexico from Phoenix, which is a six hour drive in the middle of the night to make sure he didn't uh, commit suicide. And I remember the whole time trying to talk to him about what we were doing and what we did in Iraq. And I realized that that is actually a, a, a good way to organize my thoughts as, a, as I'm driving to save my friend's life, to tell him the story of us in war, because he was convinced that he actually had never seen it because he was told that he, he didn't, his records didn't show he was ever in combat. Yeah, you, you might remind our, our, our viewers, because not everyone will have the chance to have read the book, of, of that conversation that opens the book when he calls you, when Mackenzie right. calls you. And what does he ask you? He asked me if we had ever been in combat. And, uh, you know, we had been in a lot of combat, unfortunately. And um, what happened was that, you know, he had gone to the, the VA, the Veterans Administration, seeking help. He realized that he hit bottom. Uh, and as he was there asking for help, they looked up his record and said, you did not see combat. Your record shows that you're not in, you weren't ever in combat. You can't receive services. And this is not an exaggeration. This actually happened to me too, when I returned from the war and, and looked, looked for help. Uh, and what happened was our paperwork hadn't caught up and said that we had seen combat. So therefore we were just treated as if we were, you know, uh, veterans that had never seen combat, couldn't get any services, couldn't get any uh, VA adjustments, couldn't get any pension or anything of that sort. Uh, and so he had had a rough day and he had called me and, it looked very bleak. Uh, and so I, I left work 
right away and just jumped in my car and drove, uh, you know, six hours overnight into his, uh, to his apartment and um, got to his apartment and the door, he wouldn't answer the door. And so I, I kicked in the door uh, to find him on the ground. And uh, luckily he was, he was alive, uh, but it was, uh, it was some very heavy times. It's, there's a Shakespearean quality, but also something more contemporary. This is a, a scene that might have come out of Joseph Heller's Catch-22, about <laughs> not just the absurdity and tragedy of war, but of the bureaucracy s- surrounding war. One of the headlines of the book, Ruben, was that your memoir offers, and this is a euphemism, blunt assessment of the war, Harvard and Congress. I mean, this is an angry book. You're not an angry man. There's a deep anger in this book about you Mm -hmm. and your fellow soldiers being so let down by the country and particularly the American bureaucracy. Is that fair? It is fair. Look, we we went and we sacrificed our lives uh, for this country. We thought when we were there that we were going to get the the you know training that that we needed the support that we needed the equipment that we needed and it all it all went to shit they didn't do nothing happened and as we started dying we thought okay well now it'll change and it didn't we only kept dying right we didn't get new equipment they just gave us new men to replace all the men that died they didn't give us new officers uh because those are the ones that were getting us killed they just kept us sending us into the meat grinder uh and you know nobody nobody really cared about us you know we, we were basically left to keep dying to the point where again like many of us were just walking dead we we accepted death uh towards the end which you know when young men accept death uh I mean, especially people that consider themselves invincible you know that will that will change your mind and of course it you know my assessment you know i think that the title might be a little hard on that article you know but I, you know i do point out the, the things that i didn't do well at Harvard. I mean, I eventually went back and graduated, but I, I got kicked out because culturally I was just not attuned to Harvard. I come from a poor background, went to a school that's not very, um, you know, that's not oriented towards poor people. And look, there's a lot of great students that go there. There's a lot of poor students that go there and they succeed. I just didn't, I just didn't cut it right away. Um, and, and, and as for Congress, I think it, there is a problem with Congress. It is a superficial place uh, of people that you know have fake relationships and even have fake relationships with their constituents, uh, and then you know I think it's I'm not ashamed to say that that I think that you know the place you know could could be doing a lot better. What came out of it for me? I know it's not a policy book, but what came out of it for me was a clear message. There's a clear need in this country for national service. Um, the reason why the Iraq war isn't the kind of scandal that Vietnam was, was because it was uh, only guys like you who were sucked into yeah, it. The, yeah. the the sons of the well-to-do, you, as you know in the book, I think you were the only person at Harvard in your situation. I mean, you were yeah. sort of half in and out of Harvard, but the, the vast majority of kids at Harvard or Princeton or any of these other fancy schools, uh, Stanford and Berkeley on the West Coast, none of them had your experience. So the ruling class in this country on both left and right are entirely ignorant of what the war was like. Is that fair? I think they, they were ignorant. Uh, I mean, until we started dying, because a lot of these guys were from Ohio, a swing state, and then all of a sudden everyone started paying attention. Um, but I think it's still a problem to, to date. I mean, the reason why the Afghanistan war went on for as long as it did is because only 1% of the country serves in the military. And of that 1%, very few are actually in combat arms. Uh, and you know, we were, you know, for some reason as a nation, we said, it's okay for us to lose 50 to hundred men per year in Afghanistan. And we'll just keep 
going as if it's not a, a big deal, right? Not counting the people that get maimed, not people that come back with PTSD. Uh, so, you know, is there a need for national service? Sure, I think there's a need for national service. I'm not sure there everyone should be joining the military or be forced to join the military, but you should understand that you have to sacrifice. But even simple things, the fact that the Bush administration cut taxes in the middle of a war, right? Where I'm trying to get just basic armor, and yet you're more worried about trying, you know, getting the the top one percent more money shows a lot about your values are. What are you saying to the country when in the middle of a war, there is no idea of joint sacrifice. You give a tax cuts to the very rich who aren't contributing as much in terms of the people that are, you know, doing the real dirty fighting, uh, you know, in, in wars. Was there a lot of political talk on the ground room? I and you, you report on a lot of fun, a lot of joking around, a lot of serious talk about life and death, but were the, the guys you hung around with were people angry about how forgotten you had become in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, it, you know, there was a lot of political talk. And, and look, I, I was always a moderate to liberal leaning person, uh, always a Democrat. So and, and everybody in my unit knew it. And there was a couple of us there, a couple of people. Most of the men were independent, but some of them were very conservative. Uh, and uh, but they were all ticked off about the war. They were ticked off about our leadership. They were ticked off about our lack of armor. Um, you know, we were very patriotic men uh, from all walks of life and and we were going to do whatever we could to keep ourselves alive and accomplish the mission. But we were pissed. And even now, you know, most of the guys I serve with are, are you know, Republicans and Trump supporters. Uh, they're still good friends of mine. And we talk about politics. Um, you know, we're, you know, luckily, somehow we're able to keep it very civil. But, um, you know, they still have the same anger and, and you know, mistrust, I would say. Uh, you know, of, um, you know, American use of power uh, and that, you know, how misguided it can be and how, you know, misused it can be. Your experience as a soldier was all encompassing on a spiritual and physical way. I mean, there's some very amusing anecdotes, one of which is that you used to listen <laughs> to the Buena Vista Social Club as you went yeah. into action. I mean, that was just one. I think Sarah McLachlan as well. Yeah. Music was important for you. Music and food seems to dominate a lot of the narrative. Yeah. So the music was important to me because I'm actually I'm when when things get very dangerous or very um, hectic, I'm actually calmer. I'm a person that's very calm and I decide what to do, whatever action it takes to, to you know survive the day or, or accomplish the mission. And so with the, what happens, a lot of infantrymen, what they do before they go into combat zones, they actually put on music and to get them pumped up, get their adrenaline pumped so they can, you know, feel invincible and be able to, you know, tear down a door, whatever it is. I, I was the opposite of that. I mean, I was a, you know, I look heavy now, but back in the day, I was a, probably only 145 pounds at 5'7". So I'm not a muscular guy, even, you know, in my heyday of the Marine Corps. I was very good at knowing what I could do when I, and what I couldn't do. Um, but the most important thing I knew that was the benefit of me is that I can think quickly, uh, but the best way I can think quickly is if I'm calm. So going into combat zones and, uh, you know, being airdropped, whatever it was, uh, I would listen to music that put me in a zone and calm. And while I'm playing, you know, the music through my head, I would close my eyes into the rhythm of the, you know, the song, I would actually practice my uh, ammo refilling drills. And um, it was a very methodical way to even to the point now, if I hear those songs today, I like my hands will start twitching because they think it's time for me to, you know, to get ready for, for something. 
Ruben, when you were uh, in Iraq, I'm sure there are a couple of things you never imagined. The first, that you would become a, a United States congressman, uh, 7th District of Arizona. But I also imagine that you never thought that the war would return with you in a peculiar way, the violence of the war to Washington, D.C. You, of course, were in D.C. Um, on January 6th of last year. Um, and the Washington Post, uh, actually, sorry, this year, the Washington Post reports, uh, and I think they're quoting you, I thought I'd have to fight my way out um, when you were in Congress. You, um, uh, the Post reports, the training was suddenly relevant for the Iraq veteran and Arizona Democrat, meaning you, after an announcement blared to don gas masks stored under the seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gallego looked, uh, looked over the panicked faces of fellow lawmakers and explained to them some of the most potent lessons from boot camp. Trust your mask. Take measured, shallow breaths. Don't panic. Um, The war in Iraq came to D.C. for an afternoon on on January the 6th of this year, didn't it? Yeah, I fought fought insurgents in Iraq and I fought insurgents uh, on, well, luckily I didn't end up fighting them, but, you know, they they were trying to fight us. uh, And I prepared certainly to prepare for that uh, in case they broke through. And, you know, I guess if there's any benefit to to being in combat and, and dealing with the aftermath of it, the skills that I learned helped out people that day. Um, and there was a lot of panic that day. And um, seeing the utter fear in the eyes of these young staffers is what actually triggered me into the role because it reminded me of the young men that I was with in Iraq. And especially the, after we lost the first group of men, a second group of men came to replace them. And they had never seen combat. A lot of them had never even left the, the wire. And uh, I remember seeing their first the first look at combat and 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 knowing that I had to grab them physically and make a move uh, and show leadership to actually keep them out of trouble and keep me out of trouble. And that's why I responded the way that I did that day. And I had to make sure that you know people were safe. I had to make sure that you know my one of my good friends, Eric Swalwell, congressman from California, was safe because I had promised his wife that I was going to get him out in case something happened. And uh, I mean, at least luckily, we, we were able to do that. I mean, the book ends with that chapter. Did Is there any connection, do you think, between the insurgency on January 6th and the kind of insurgency driven by Al-Qaeda that you were fighting in Iraq? Well, you know, I think some of the things that actually are uh, create the, the, the base of it, yes. You know, it is a lot of dissatisfied uh, men who feel the world changing around them and instead of adapting to it are lashing out uh, you know, in violence. Uh, and I also think there's another segment to this, like our 20 year wars uh, that we have been in for so long, I think also are deteriorate our democracy. Democracy should not be in 20 year wars. It creates bad outcomes. It glorifies uh, you know, warrior, warrior, you know, a warrior class which we shouldn't be glorifying. We are, we are a democracy. We should respect them. We should honor them. Uh, but you know what happens is when we teach people that violence is the only way overseas, at some point they start believing that violence is the only way uh, domestically. Yeah, that violence has returned home. Um, I think it's today uh, your fellow, uh, fellow Arizona congressman from the other side, Paul Gosar, uh, tweeted uh, an anime video showing him killing 
Representative Ocasio-Cortez and attacking uh, Joe Biden. Uh, you tweeted today this type of, about Gosa's uh, comments, this type of despicable behavior should have no place in our country, let alone in Congress. In any other workplace, uh, Representative Gosar would already have been fired. He should be stripped of his committee assignments and censored by the House. I looked up Gosar. Um, Bad idea. Yeah, well, what was interesting, he was before being elected to Congress in 2010, he owned his own dental practice and was a small businessman in Flagstaff, Arizona for 25 years. He'd never seen service. You've seen service and you're not a man, I think, to create a cult around violence. Is the problem with people like Gosar and indeed President or ex-President Trump that the cult of violence appeals to men who have never really been in battle? Absolutely. And uh, they 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 somehow believe that there is something you know amazing to it and somehow there's something empowering it. And even these ideas of, of, of us having some revolution in this country and people don't realize that you don't want to be in the middle of a revolution. You don't want to be in the middle of an insurgency. You don't deal with warlords. And certainly the United States is not a country that would do well with that concerning how armed we are and, and how you know divisive things can be. Uh, but you know, if you look at Donald Trump, who had like four deferments, never served in the military, how he used the military and military service as a political tool uh, for his goals, uh, not for what it's supposed to be, which is protect the United States, the sovereignty of the United States, and then, you know, use the idea of militarism uh, to really turn into fascism is what we're heading towards on January 6th. It's a very dangerous, very dangerous trend. Uh, but if you had been in war, if you had seen you know, innocent lives taken or even not innocent lives taken, it's nothing you want. It's it's nothing you want. Humans are not made to live with that. Exactly. And your book in the tradition of, 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 of literature, good, important literature about war is a warning about how awful war is, how tragic, how it destroys everybody and everything. Mm -hmm. The new book is called They Called Us Lucky. Uh, the life and afterlife of the Iraq war's hardest hit unit. That afterlife is still going on. I want to congratulate you, um, Ruben, on the book. It's really a tremendous achievement. It's very, it's brutally honest. I, I know you, you didn't enjoy writing it, but it's an no. essential, it's an essential book. And I applaud you and respect you for writing it. Keep Thank well. You. Congratulations on the book. I really think everyone needs to read it if they need to understand what the war in Iraq was really like. So thank you so much for appearing on my show. Thank you, sir. Have a good one.